much more fun looking at it this way. It was rather too exciting at the time, wasn't it, R2? Don't get technical with me, R2. Just hurry up and tell everyone how the film was really made. Besides, you really must begin at the beginning. Now just behave yourself, R2. Don't be so stubborn. You know perfectly well where it began. It began with Mr. Lucas. fans and moof milkers everywhere and welcome to the 17th episode of Blast Points. Now this week is a special interview episode with the one and only J.W. Rinsler. Now you probably know J.W. Rinsler's name because he is the author of the New York Times bestseller book The Making of Star Wars. He's also written The Making of Empire Strikes Back, The Making of Return of the Jedi, the making of Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith, the making of Indiana Jones. He's written Clone Wars episodes, the Storyboards book, the Blueprints book. It just goes on and on. He has a long, long history with Star Wars books, nonfiction Star Wars books, and recording the history of the making of Star Wars films. Recently, I had the pleasure of talking to him on the phone, so let's go to that interview right now. The three books, based on the original trilogy, they had intros by uh, Peter Jackson, Ridley Scott, and Brad Bird. And a lot of times they talked about how they were first exposed to Star Wars. How were you first exposed to Star Wars? I was first exposed by accident. Uh, I guess in retrospect, I was lucky. Um, Basically, my stepfather at the time worked for a local radio station, which was pretty big, and he got free tickets to go see a sneak preview of Star Wars. And uh, I didn't want to go because the reputation for science fiction at that time was pretty bad. I had just been taken to see that Russian movie, Solaris. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And I was too young and was just bored out of my mind and understood nothing, and I thought, I don't want to see a sci-fi movie. Oh, my God. It's really hard to imagine what it was like back then because they were really either pretty bad, like Logan's Run, or if you were a kid, way too complicated, like sure. 2001, which I was taken to when I was six. So anyway, we were still, we went anyway, and uh, it was, you know, it, it was at the, uh, I think it was at the Castro Theater in San Francisco, or not the Castro, the, um, well, I can't remember, famous, the, cor- the Coronet, some famous... Uh, cinema in San Francisco I'm spacing on the name and uh, I, my brother says that George Lucas was there and stood up you know and people clapped I don't remember but he claims that happened but I do remember you know the famous opening shot which wasn't famous at all at the time and it just blew the audience's mind you know it's just one of those things that happened and then, it seemed to happen fairly frequently in the 70s where you just would go to the cinema every, practically every year and you'd see some movie and it would just blow your mind. Um, and uh, so it was incredible. And, uh, you know, it changed my, 
my life forever. And but, but it's funny because actually, I think the film that had a bigger impact on me was American Graffiti. Yeah, which I didn't know at the time. The same director had directed both movies. But when I went to go work at Lucasfilm, you know, it was it was to work with this person who had created these two movies uh, that had you know had such a huge impact on my life. Now, from it's clear from your books that there's a there's a there's a passion for not only Star Wars, obviously, but the the art of movie making. How 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 the process is involved in making a film? Where did that for you that passion? Where did that come from to to study and chronicle the art of movie making? I think that came from seeing Jaws. I saw Jaws. I was one of the. I guess again it was sort of just luck or coincidence or whatever. I was I would saw the version of Jaws that they quickly pulled from release that had the incredible massacre in the pond. Wow! The kids are just because we saw opening day or whatever or second day in L.A. We happened to be there, and so it was it just very impactful. And so I got the book The Jaws Law because I wanted to know everything about how they made that movie, and I loved reading it. And I think I read it a couple, few times, and uh, I thought, this is fascinating. And so when I got to Lucasfilm, I pitched Rick McCallum on the idea of doing a book that really chronicled the production of the film instead of just talking about the visual effects. And he said, yeah. And right away, I was, before episode two was even finished, I was at the first art department meeting for episode three and got to basically tag along for three years and write the, you know, the real chronicle of how the movie was made. So it was a, more than a dream come true. It was just amazing. How did you, how did you first end up at Lucasfilm? How did, how did that start for you? Uh, it was just, you know, I, I knew I wanted to work there, and I would check. It was easier back then. They just had their jobs on a Lucasfilm website, and I would check every week or so. And I applied for a few jobs and didn't get them. And then a, I didn't even know they had a publishing department. And I was managing editor of uh, Game Pro magazine. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had a editorial job that opened up. In fact, they had two, which I didn't even know. And I went and interviewed with Lucy Wilson, who who at that time was the the first employee of Lucasfilm. She'd been working here since 1974 and was head of the publishing department. And she hired me as... I didn't even know what it was, but it was the nonfiction editor. So it just naturally happened to include all the nonfiction stuff, like the making of. And so that led one thing led to another. And I was just uh, very, very fortunate. Yeah, dream come true. Totally. Um, yeah. So in, in your original trilogy books that you wrote, was there, in pulling together the research, was there any one that was more challenging than another? Uh, well, the first one was the most challenging because I'd never done an archival book before. You know, I, and, and I was never, I never really intended to be a writer, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, again, I won't go bore you with all the details, but I ended up writing episode three and then pitched them the idea of doing episode four, and they said yes. And I just thought, well, I'll go through and I'll interview people and I'll do this, some archival research. But then Steve Stansweet told me that he, he was pretty sure there were these interviews that had never been used before that were in the archives. And I asked the librarian, and, and they said, oh, yeah, and they brought out these two box, big boxes full of interviews that had never been 
basically read. I think Steve may have read a few of them. I don't think anybody had read through them ever. Wow. They were done, they were put in a box and forgotten. And uh, so that when, when I found those boxes, I realized this was going to be an amazing book. But it was a huge amount of work, and I didn't have much time. I think I did the whole book in nine months or something. Wow. And that's on top of my day job. You know, it was morning, nights, and weekends. So that was kind of nerve-wracking, because I knew a lot of people would be <laughs> scrutinizing it. And, and as I tried to do a good job. If I did it now, I'd probably be better, but it is what it is. Uh, that made me think is in when you when you've been working on one of these books um and then let's say for the the book of episode four new hope and then let's say you're working on episode five or six it did was there any information that has come up in any of those books that you wish you could have included let's say in an earlier one yeah, that happened all the time. It's still happening. <laughs> People come up and say, oh, did you see this? And I go, oh, man, I wish I could have put that in the book. Because people are always uncovering more material. And uh, you can even see in the beginning of Empire, there's a picture of the uh, of a shot, the first shot that ILM did for Star Wars. And I just threw it in there because... We're still talking about Star Wars in the beginning, and I had to show that in a book. Mm-hmm. But, and, and it, it was funny, because I, I can't remember exactly what happened, but I I could have sworn that I asked George about it, or maybe I didn't ask him, and that was my fault. But it came up again, and he said, oh, yeah, I have a, I have a, I said, what was the first shot they did? And he said, oh, I have it framed in my study. And I said, oh. And the, the book was already done. <laughs> so. Oh. <laughs> Got it, so he got it. He was kind enough to bring it uh, from his from his home, and we uh, scanned it or photographed it. You know, we didn't take it out of the frame. We we photographed it and then stuck it in the book. But there there are dozens of things like that. I there's even and, and sometimes I'd make you know I'd think something and find out later I was wrong about something. I think I put a a, a painting of Ralph Aquarius that I found in Empire because it was with all the other Empire paintings mm-hmm. and it hadn't been seen before. And then I realized that, in fact, it was for Star Wars. And I thought it was of the rough draft. And then only recently did we figure out it was from the second draft. So it's it's in the right book now, but it still has the wrong caption. So we're going to correct that in this next printing. Wow. Like special- so, I mean, there's not, not that I want to say there's you know, the, the books are 98% accurate, but mm-hmm. it's inevitable that you make mistakes. Now, I'm a big fan of um, Alan Arnold's Once Upon a Galaxy and John Philip Reacher's uh, Making of Return of the Jedi. How much did those did the research in those books inform your process? Um, not very much, because those guys were... I mean, I like those books, too, but they were limited to basically telling the story of the actual principal photography. They really didn't cover much of anything of pre-production or post. Yeah. So there was, there was definitely some good stuff in there about um, production. And in the case of um, Alan Arnold, he was instrumental in that he did a lot of interviews, and they only used about 5 to 10% of them in the book. Wow. That was, again, I got very lucky. Um, Don, it's in the intro to the book, but Don Bees, who was one of the first archivists at Lucasfilm, he found one day, they were going to throw it out, all of his original tapes. 
They were in the garbage. Wow. So he said, do you, you know, he took them home and kept them in a the closet. And when he found out I was doing Empire, he said, do you want these tapes? And I go, yes, that would be useful. <laughs> and so we had them all transcribed. They'd never been transcribed before. And again, it was a gold mine, just an incredible gold mine. And, uh, and then for Jedi, um, he didn't, at that point, they got a lot more stringent about information. And I, again, and again, I was lucky. I was looking through all these books, boxes, and production in the, in the Skywalker Ranch for archives. And I really had sort of just thought, I'm not going to really get anything interview-wise because it's clear from the book he really didn't do, he did the most, he did one. I thought he, I thought he interviewed Richard Marquand, and that was about it. And everything else was sort of B-roll. Um, but then stuffed in a box, it wasn't on anybody's list of things that they had. I found stuffed in a box. It, the original interview transcription for Mark Vaughn, it was over 100 pages long. And then another one for Howard Kazanjian, it was also 100 pages long. Wow. And they covered a lot of material. And he'd only used a teeny bit of it in, in the book. So in that case, I'm also in debt to him, to that author as well. It makes it, you are like the literal Indiana Jones of Lucasfilm archives, like digging through sites, burying, digging up treasures. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I found original Ralph Macquarie art stuffed in a box. Wow. I found all sorts of things. And it, yeah, and nobody basically has the time to do it because, you know, the way corporations are run, everybody has too much to do. But in my case, because I was writing the books, I had the okay to go out and, you know, forage around the archives for a few hours every week while I was doing the books. And that led to discovery of all kinds of stuff. Absolutely fascinating. So, so a lot, we've seen a lot of Ralph McQuarrie and Joe Johnston and Nilo stuff being reused in either Rebels or any of the various new, the new era of Star Wars. Is there anything in your research that you found that hasn't been used yet that you like came across and said, that's a really cool idea or that's a really cool Ralph painting. I'd love to see that in one of the new projects going forward. Well, I think, I think between the new movies and the new projects, they're, they're covering pretty, they're covering all the bases. <laughs> uh, trying to think whether there's something, I mean, that would be cool. Um, actually, I'm sure they've done it already. Yeah. The, you know, it gets in, that gets into esoterica where I kind of, my eyes kind of gloss over. Sure. Some of that stuff. I mean, it's all, I love the artwork and, it, and it's great that they're repurposing it. Um, and one of the things that I did that was fun was take the, uh, the uh, rough draft of Star Wars and make it into a comic book. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I read that with, in Dark Horse, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, I, it would be fun if they did that for, for Empire, it would be a little bit different, but, you know, you could do it with Lee Brackett's script, although, I don't know, it's not the same as doing George's early draft, but you could do, you know, the early draft of Empire was different enough, you could do it. And then, but the Jedi one was really different, you know, with the with the two Death Stars and the proto-Coruscant and everything. That could be, that would be a really fun comic book. I would love. I know I don't speak for myself. I would. I think there's a lot of people out there that would love to see that. Um, in your writing and research of the films, 
again, like I said, so in depth, so intense. Did it change your opinion of any of the any of the films or any of the scenes in the films? Well, I guess I always figured that Star Wars, in terms of visual effects, had to be the hardest because it was the first. And that's just an assumption I made, which was completely wrong. Because <laughs> all the guys at ILM, to a man and or a woman, said that Empire was the hardest one because they had to top themselves and it was just so much more ambitious than Star Wars. Um, so that was kind of surprising. And um, I think... You know, just overall, I was just so impressed with how nice everybody was from back then. Hmm. You know, it was was not, they were just, you know, and I grew up in Berkeley, California, so I kind of, I I can dovetail with, you know, I understand the mindset, basically, of all these people who were in Southern California and then, you know, George is definitely a Northern California guy, and it's the tail end of the, hippie movement mm-hmm. and there's it was really just this mom and pop store and this very very eccentric independent filmmaker and I guess that is something that I understood didn't know and, and impressed me so much is that you know people have really had this wrong uh, idea of George as, as being this blockbuster filmmaker which he really is not he kind of fell into it, it was, he was just as surprised as anybody else he was a you know indie abstract filmmaker tone poem. If you look at his student films, they're nothing like Star Wars, and Star Wars is a lot weirder than people give her credit for. Oh, I, I agree. Yeah, you know, people try and imitate it, and they they pick up all the wrong cues from the films. It's, they don't understand what the films are really about. Um, you know, they're not about lightsabers. You know, they're they go much deeper. The first film barely barely had a laser sword turn on, you know. And uh, that that really interested me. And the fact that Fox was so, tried so hard to sabotage the first film that it was just amazing that it got made at all. You know, that George paid for, you know, and if it wasn't for American Graffiti, he just never, it never would have been made. Without the money and the success of the graffiti, they wouldn't have hired him, and then he wouldn't have been, and then they wouldn't have had any money for pre-production, which he basically he financed out of his own pocket. Which is just, you know, who's doing that today? Spending, you know, back then it was over four hundred thousand dollars. I'm not sure that in today's dollars it's probably something like four million. I mean, nobody's spending that kind of money on a project that that seems completely doomed from the start. <laughs> you, know, you know, James Cameron, well, anyway, yeah, that, that was just very impressive. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's and, I, and I always like that sometimes you, you think, just slow down and you, you think back to just that original film and how, like you were saying, just how truly bizarre it really is, and it's so easy to forget that now with all the stuff that is around Star Wars. You you forget that it started with one completely amazing but really weird movie, you know? Yeah, and a lot of that's in the book. I mean, nobody knew whether people, audiences would even be able to stand the idea of two robots talking. Yeah. They're the first characters who are really talking in the movie, um, or, you know, or first part of the movie to take you from, you know, basically to the segue. 
you know, it was a very eccentric idea. And then this, you know, the big guy in the dog suit, as they said, and <laughs> and uh, people, you know, very stormtroopers' pants were falling off. I mean, if you have you seen the, um, I, actually, I'm happy I get to plug this. Have you seen the enhanced edition of the books oh. for the iPad? Oh, yes, absolutely. I didn't know about them at first, and I had a friend of mine that turned me on to them right around, around when, the, uh, when the Return of the Jedi one came out. And now I absolutely swear by that, You're the enhanced versions. I have them all on my iPad, and they are, yeah, they're incredible. Yeah, I mean, I spent a lot of time in the film archive picking through stuff. It is not organized much at all. And there, we made all kinds of discoveries, like the gag reel, where you see the Stormtrooper costumes falling apart. And they, we, we spent a lot of time on them, and then they got absolutely no publicity whatsoever. So for the fans out there, there's each of them has about half an hour of film, you know, stuff that ne- had never been seen before, which we found in the archives, plus about half an hour of audio, yeah. which we never heard. So I, I'm very happy with those things. If you haven't already checked them out, they will blow your mind. Some of the audio from Return of the Jedi, like some of the meetings, that was unbelievable. Yeah, you wrote the the two-part Clone Wars story that disappeared, which I love because Jar Jar got a girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, I that was George's idea. <laughs> Good to hear that. Um, how did that opportunity come about for you? Uh, basically, I asked George, point blank. We were we were working on frames at the time, which was this massive project that was five years to do. Mm-hmm. Where we sat there for hours and hours, where George went through the six Star Wars movies, literally ten frames per second dish, went on slower than that, and then you know toggle back and forth between frames and choose his favorite frame. So we had a lot of downtime. <laughs> wow, so, I can imagine. We were, it just took hours and hours and hours. And um, I, was either, I think it was after one of those meetings or something, I said, you know, hey, how about if I write one of the Cold Wars episodes? And at the time, he said, he was very nice. He said, sure, you can write it and direct it. <laughs> but then he kind of forgot, and directing kind of fell by the wayside. And I went to the season four meeting, and we didn't get to mine. And he said, well, you're here. We'll get to yours eventually. And it was like six months later. So it was, it was way too late for season four already. So it ended up ultimately being in season six because it got bumped from season five. So anyway, but, it, but in a way it was a good thing because we ended up breaking the story. It was just me, George, and Dave Filoni. So that was kind of, that was really fun. And, but I think, you know, most of the, most of the ideas in there are George's and Dave Filoni's and, and the guy who ultimately directed it. Yeah, I was wondering with the, the, the episode is a very strong Temple of Doom influence, which I loved. Um, and I was wondering, where, was, was that from you or was that from George or Dave? That, that was from, um, I'm not sure if that was George or Dave, but it definitely wasn't me. <laughs> I wouldn't say something that strongly. George, you know, would come basically for most of the episodes with a pretty good idea of what he wanted overall. Um, I'm not sure. I'd have to go back and look at the script to remind myself if I, you know, of anything that I contributed to, of any kind of substance. I think I tried to make it as funny as I could. And, and I felt George said, 
George, I do remember George telling me that it was up to me to, uh, what was the word he used? Uh, not revitalize, but basically to make Jar Jar okay again. Well, I, I, I've, I've said this to friends of mine. I, I really feel like there's something about Jar Jar in an animated form that just clicks so well. I love, like, when, I, when I'd be watching Clone Wars and it was like, oh, this is the Jar Jar episode, I'd be like, oh, good. You know, like, I, I loved the Jar Jar episodes. I really did. Yeah, well, I'm glad you like him. I think the word he used definitely was rehabilitate. He looked <laughs> at me and I had to rehabilitate Jar Jar, and everybody at the meeting was laughing at me. <laughs> like getting hazed. Um, so I know we all can't wait for the making of Force Awakens book. And I know you probably can't say too much about it because it would still a ways off, but you've probably been so involved in every step of the way in the production of Force Awakens. Um, how was it when you finally sat down and watched it, knowing how much you already knew from its very seemingly complicated production history. Right. Um, because the book is still in production, I can't really speak to that. Sure. Um, you know, I no longer work at Lucasfilm, so, but I, but I still have the old instincts, and I know the PR department there would not be happy if I said anything about it. <laughs> totally understood. <laughs> Rebo's got the beat, and the band plays on. You can relive it all with Kenner's Star Wars Return of the Jedi Collection. Introducing Size Noodles and the Rebo Band. Jabba the Hutt action playset sold separately. Play it again, Size. Starring Size Noodles, Droopy McCool on clarinet, Max Rebo on organ. Ribbit Rebo. <laughs> Dance, Droopy. It's your last solo, Snoodles. Whoa. Use Size Noodles and the Rebo Band. Jabba the Hutt action playset sold separately from Kenner's Star Wars Return of the Jedi Collection. Your favorite Star Wars movie growing up, and and your favorite now? Uh, they're the same. The, the first one, Star Wars. I still call it just Star Wars. That's yeah. what it was called. That, that was the one that changed the landscape of cinema. It was just such a great film. Such a you know every practically every shot in that film is amazing. Such great art direction. John Barry is the production designer. You know everybody was just everybody was just exploding with creativity on that film it's uh, i'm i'm near ann arbor in the university of michigan and a few years ago they showed an original print of um i don't know where they had it but it was like it didn't you know it didn't say a new hope it just started out with star wars and my friends and i were all shocked at how many things were different from this whatever era this print was from but the one thing that we all walked away from is we walked out of that the original film and we all walked out with like so much adrenaline like and like I was saying yeah. you forget how powerful that one movie is and how it and must it, have made audiences feel in 77 you know like just a bolt of energy yeah and if you put it back in the context too films that came out back then in general it was so depressing to go see a movie a lot of the time yeah because you know people were the main characters were killed a lot of the time, and not just killed, you know, they were like riddled with bullets because they found out a new way to do these horrible squibs. And, uh, you know, uh, they, were, they were just very nihilistic and scary, like The Exorcist, which is a great film. Sure. Great film, but Star Wars made you feel so good. And it, and it, was, a, it was like Mark Hamill said, it was like a ride. 
and uh, except that it has content, a lot of content, mm-hmm. and it also has, you know, it's the full, only Star Wars film that's fully contained. If that, if that, if they've never made another Star Wars movie, you could completely understand that movie. It's true. It's very true. Um, your favorite piece of John Williams music? Uh, it's the the Force theme when Luke goes out and looks at the twin suns. Favorite bounty hunter? Uh, Boba Fett. Okay. Any reason why? Uh, he just comes to mind first. It was great the way he just didn't really say much at all and uh, seemed to be on top of things <laughs> until Jedi, where they kind of just kind of killed him. Yeah. Fell into a fell into a big sand mouth. Um, what color would your lightsaber blade be? Uh, I think I go for green. Yeah, the color of rebirth. Uh, your favorite non-main character droid? Not main character. Okay, I have to go with Gonk Droid. Beautiful. Because that was one of the things that I was so happy to find in the in the uh, enhanced edition is that. They had this whole gag of the Gonthroy just sort of wandering around confused during the attack on the Death Star. <laughs> and you can hear them going, you know, stop, forward, left, right. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> well, I thank you so much for your time. Um, and if people want to find people want to find you online or information on some of your books, how can they do that? Uh, they can go to my website, jwrinsler.com. I'm also on Twitter, although I don't tweet very much. Um, but I'm working on a novel, um, so but you know, which I'll hopefully be able to start tweeting about in a few months or so. Um, but the website, I guess, is the easiest. So, Mr. Rinsler, I just want to thank you so much for talking with me via via Blast Points today. Stay in touch. It's <laughs> nice talking with you. Yeah, great talking with you. Thank you again. Yeah, so I just want to thank J.W. Rinsler one more time uh, for that awesome chat. Really great. So many amazing topics brought up. Like, I keep thinking about the making of the Frames book. It was sitting in an editing room with George Lucas, going through all six of the films, the original films back then, frame by frame with him. Unbelievable. So you're going to want to join us uh, next week on Blast Points as Gabe will be back. Yippee! And we're going to be going in-depth on Steve Perry's Shadows of the Empire book, which, can you believe, is 20 years old? It is. Uh, We're going to be going through every aspect of Shadows of the Empire. It's history, the book, the comics, the soundtrack, the video game, its weird connection to the new canon. We're going to be going super in-depth on Shadows. Um, So get out your Prince Skizor t-shirt and your Dash Randar mullet wig, and join along. In the meantime, you can leave us a review on iTunes, and I will read it on the next show. Or you can contact us on Twitter. It's at Blast underscore points. We're also on Facebook. There's a Blast Points page, and we're on Instagram. And you can read my weekly reviews of Clone Wars. That's right, I'm going through every single old episode of Clone Wars on DoomRocket.com. Every Thursday, I'll have a new review of a classic Clone Wars episode, so be sure to check that out. And tune in next week for the Shadows of the Empire episode. And thanking J.W. Rinsler once again for the interview. And until next week... Goodbye, old friend. May the Force be with you. 
I think one of the key factors in the uh, success is that it's a positive film. It has heroes and villains, and uh, that it essentially uh, is a fun movie to watch. It's been a long time since people have been able to go to the movies and see a sort of straightforward, wholesome, fun adventure.